you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 34. We're continuing on in our fall series, which we called Fight Club, where we're turning Sunday mornings, at least the messages, into a chance to talk about the kingdom of God in conflict. The kingdom of God does not protect us or keep us from conflict. The kingdom of God teaches us how to navigate conflict well. And it's honestly one of my favorite things in the story of Jesus. Jesus was like a judo master when it came to conflicting conversations. Have you ever noticed this? They would try to trap him. They would try to trick him. They would try to put him in a situation where he wouldn't be able to respond or where his words would condemn him. And it was like in every single moment, Jesus knew how to navigate conflict. And what's more is that even though Jesus was willing to get into conflict, he was uh, both honoring and also willing to confront the dysfunction in culture. And this morning we're going to be talking about one of the dysfunctions in culture, and it's a little bit of a weird one. And I might come across as harsh, and I don't mean to. So I'm just putting this disclaimer at the front, that if you're uncomfortable or feeling criticized by what I'm saying, I don't intend to uh, criticize you personally. But uh, my grandpa, Ken, who my, mo- my mom mentioned earlier, she, uh, or my grandpa Ken called these, uh, these sorts of sermons going to the woodshed, uh, which is, you know, back in the day, his dad used to spank him by taking him to the woodshed, and, right? So I, I don't actually uh, believe in spanking. That's a different story. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the point of the sermon is, is that I'm trying to speak to something that if it convicts you or makes you uncomfortable, I apologize. It's one of those situations where I wish I had a bigger pulpit to hide behind. I don't. So I'm just going to try to be uh, as funny as I can, throw in some wisecracks here and there. But we're going to go into a little bit of uncomfortable territory, and hopefully we'll see the light of Christ and the kingdom as it pertains to conflict in the family. No one here has ever had conflict in their family, right? That would be, that would be strange and unusual. Hey, thank you, Todd. I appreciate that. So let's read this passage together, Matthew 10. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lord, we just ask you for grace and peace to be upon us as we explore your words to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would uh, help the seed of your word to land on good soil in my heart, in our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. You are being discipled by your life's most dominant influence. You are already being discipled by your life's most dominant influence. It is not a question of whether or not you want to be discipled. It is a question of who you are being discipled by. This is why the powers and principalities come into conflict 
with the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is an alternative way for people to be discipled into God's world and God's way of seeing the world. And the powers and principalities are not... (laughs) When I was a kid, I read a Christian fiction book that made the powers and principalities out to be uh, demons that were just trying to convince individuals to sin. Like they'd sneak up to a dude at a party and they'd be like, hey man, those drugs look cool. Now I'm not saying that that's not happening, but I'm saying the, the powers and principalities are far more nefarious than that. And their agenda is to disciple you and to disciple your children. Now I've used this example before, but it's an easy one and it's helpful because although it's convicting, it convicts all of us equally, okay? You probably see about 40,000 to 200,000 messages, advertisements per year in your life. Per year. 40,000 to 200,000 messages are being sent to you through your ears and through your eyes, and sometimes when you're walking by Cinnabon through your nose. (laughs) Messages are being sent to you, and what are they telling you? Buy stuff, right? Consume our goods and services. Now, this in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. But the large majority, if we're willing to admit it, the large majority of those messages come with this added shame. You won't be whole until you buy me. This is why there are no fat, ugly people in beer commercials. The beer doesn't make you look good until you're far too drunk. Right? I mean, I'm not speaking from experience, but I'm just saying that people talk about beer goggles where it's like you drink too much and suddenly the whole world is rosy. And that may very well be true, but the point I'm trying to make is you don't find the people in the beer commercials in the dive bars. But the beer commercial makes you feel insignificant, insecure, and inadequate until you consume what the product is claiming will give you, really, eternal life. Come to me and drink and you can have eternal life. So we send out messages in culture that make us feel insecure and inadequate until we consume something, and then we have to compensate for that by saying, um, don't drive drunk, don't overconsume, know your limit and play within it. And we have to keep trying to disciple people. An organization is trying to disciple people around their appetites, and another organization is trying to disciple people's overindulgence of their appetites. Okay. So the kingdom is in conflict with the powers and principalities because there are many forces that would like to disciple you to a certain outcome. And not just you, your children. And not just your children, but your children's children. And Jesus calls us to come follow him. So this is how culture shapes the individual. You have free will to make your own choices, but they're subject and framed by the environment that you submit yourself to. So let me give you an example. People talk a lot about nature versus nurture, and they talk about, do I really have free will, or did, did my culture and my past and my family and my circumstances make me do the things I do? It's true that the culture affects us, but we still have free will within our culture. As a silly illustration, again, I'm trying to be a wise-cracking Dennis the Menace this morning. You can choose whether or not when you're at the public pool if you want to get wet or not but you can't swim in a pool full of spaghetti. The culture of the pool is one where the pool is filled with water. You don't get to make all the choices. 
you just get to make a binary decision based on the environment you're in. Do I want to swim or do I want to not swim? So what ends up happening is the forces of culture, the powers and principalities, they are constantly trying to reduce people down to binary decisions about whether they want to swim or not swim. And then by doing that, they make people into different camps. Left, right. Right versus wrong. Good versus bad. Patriot versus rebel. You know what I found fascinating? Here we go, we're gonna meddle. You know what I found fascinating that I observed? I I do not care about football at all, okay? But American football, I care a lot about uh, real football, like European football, but I don't care about American football at all. It's just one big concussion machine. I'm sorry, Chris is shaking his head. He's about to rebuke me. (laughs) Forgive me, Chris. As a brother in Christ, I implore you. I only say that I don't care so that you understand. My, my comment is not about teams or people. It's just an observation from a million miles away, okay? In the United States, in the NFL, two different players in the past five or six years, forgive me if I've got the dates wrong, two different players got famous for kneeling in the arena. One knelt after completing a play to pray and worship to God. He was celebrated for that decision. Another player kneeled during the national anthem and he lost his contract and couldn't play again even though he's by far qualified enough to participate in the league. Both of them claim to be Christians. One of them is celebrated by Christians and one of them is not. The one who refuses to stand to the flag is criticized for his decision Because in the United States, some people are more comfortable with you serving God as long as your God is submitted to the U.S. Constitution and flag. So the dominant cultural influence that everyone must subject themselves to, in this sense, is the flag. The flag is the reigning power and principality. You're allowed to kneel and worship God. You're you're allowed to kneel in submission to God just as long as it doesn't violate the dominant cultural influence. So what ends up happening is people in culture get split between left, right, between good and bad, between right and wrong, and we're reduced down into a series of binaries. Because if we're already in the pool, the only question is, are you swimming or not swimming? And this is the way Jesus often gets out of these crazy situations that he finds himself in. Like they come to Jesus and they give him a coin and they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Remember, the Jewish people are oppressed. And one of the reasons why they're oppressed and the main conflicts they have is that they don't want to pay taxes. They especially don't want to pay the temple tax. Because you know what the temple tax is? The temple tax is is an affront to the sovereignty of God. Caesar says, you can worship whoever you want. You just have to pay me on the way into church. I know for a fact, because I've seen some of your Facebooks, that if Justin Trudeau asked for $20 before you walked into the room, you'd have a problem with it. So there are rebellions, and there are uprisings, and there are many Jewish messiahs who promise that Israel will be freed from this oppressive force, and the Pharisees go, we got him. We're going to hand him a coin, and we're going to say, is it right to pay the tax or not? If he says yes, the Romans will deal with our problem for us. 
He'll just be another failed Messiah. They'll take him out. And if he says no, he loses all his support. He's got zealots, he's got rebels on his team of disciples. He'll be abandoned by all his followers. But what is this choice? A binary. Pay the tax? Don't pay the tax. Support Caesar? Don't support Caesar. And how does Jesus answer the question? Jesus says, whose picture's on the coin? They say, well, it's Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. A lot of people think Jesus is endorsing all forms of submission to all forms of government. That's not what he's doing. Jesus is not saying everything the government does is okay and you always have to be along with it. What Jesus is saying is those, what Jesus is saying is the one who puts his image on the thing is the one who gets to control and direct the thing. What does Caesar have his picture on? Little pieces of metal. What does God have his image and likeness on? Every human life is imprinted with the image and likeness of God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar can have the trinkets. Caesar can have the coins. But God gets everything else. So when culture tries to reduce Jesus down to a binary decision, he has a way of going around it. Why? Because the kingdom of God isn't here to weigh in on our cultural disagreements. The kingdom of God isn't here to choose between left, right, between good, bad, between right and wrong. The kingdom of God transcends those sorts of tribalistic conflicts. But it's only going to affect us if we submit ourselves to be discipled by the culture Jesus is creating. Christ comes to offer freedom. He claims he is the only way to know God, and the only way to know God is as a father, and so he invites us to choose a family deeper than all of our cultural commitments. This means you must sometimes fight with your family to fight for your family. Okay, here we go. I, I have a, a, just a handful of questions to ask you, and they're connected to a handful of things that I believe our generation got wrong about the nature of the kingdom and the nature of God. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. But I first want to say this. One of the main challenges to what is great is that which is good. One of the main challenges to that which is holy and sacred is that which is a blessing but is not meant to take the top spot in our life. As Dad said several weeks ago, you are most often not destroyed by evil. Like almost never are you destroyed by evil. You are most often destroyed by blessings that you are not prepared to handle. So when Jesus says, you must, anyone who loves his own family more than me is not worthy of me, what he is saying is, the human natural family is the main competitor to the culture I am trying to create. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Have you ever wondered why people don't choose their own last names? Like I've heard of a couple people choosing their own last names. One person who's really dear to me almost picked a different last name, even though he was the only son of his father because he thought it sounded cool. And I said, dude, that's going to really hurt your dad. But then I got myself thinking, like, why does it really matter? If we're a culture and a society of individuals... 
What effect does our upbringing and our family culture have on us? And why are we loyal to the people who raise us? Why do we carry their name into the future? I call this message Family Feud because we're obviously talking about fights within the family. But we're also talking about uh, the kind of culture that's created in a, in a natural family that has influence on our life for good and for bad. And a good example of this is if you go on YouTube, you can watch hours and hours of Family Feud fails. Have you ever done this? You go on and you just watch, because the way Family Feud works is you're trying to guess what a sample of the population answered to a question. It's not the right answer, it's just the popular answer. It's the cultural answer, right? And so you go on there and you watch people and it's like, you know, Steve Harvey says, name one thing a burglar wouldn't like to see when he breaks into your house. And the guy goes, bang, and he hits the buzzer as fast as he can, right? Because he wants to win for his family. And he says, naked grandma. And Steve Harvey's like, naked grandma, that's your first thought? Naked grandma, that's the most scariest thing a burglar's going to see? What kind of family were you raised in, man? And there's hours of this comedy gold, right? But what is Family Feud? Family Feud is a game show set up around what culture says versus what your upbringing taught you. Why do I say all this? Your children are already being discipled by you. You are being discipled by the thing you submit your life to. You are being discipled by your life's most dominant influence. Therefore, your children are already being discipled by you. They're not being discipled by you because you choose to be a teacher and a mentor and a spiritual father or a mother to them. They're being discipled for, by you because you are their life's most dominant influence. They are first subjected to your influence before they are subjected to anyone else's. Uh, the New York Times drew me to this study that talked about how it's so common for individuals to take on the job that their father, father or mother had. You are at minimum 1.5 to 2.5 times more likely to have the job of your parents than the rest of culture is. And in the case of fishermen, you are 300 times more likely than culture to become a fisherman. A machinist, you're 250 times more likely to become a machinist if, you're, if your mother or your father is a machinist. The only jobs that have the lowest correlation between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, is office workers. But even there, if you broaden it from the specific job to the industry, most often people follow in their parents' footsteps. And the reason why is a thing called breakfast talk. This is what the sociologists say. They say a language is developed at the breakfast table that makes it easy for children to understand what their parents value. And when they ask kids why they followed in their parents' footsteps, they most often said... It's because it's like their job was, it's like their industry or their workplace or their job became a language that we shared. And I understood them better than other people. And I knew that if I joined them in it, I could continue to have conversations with them about it.
As your children get older, the number of cultural influences they are subject to grow, and they have more binary choices to make. Will I stay in soccer or not? Will I choose to continue with piano lessons or not? You can force them to practice when they're two. Sorry, you can force them to practice when they're eight. You can't force them to practice when they're two. <laughs> you can force them to practice when they're 12, but you can't force them to practice when they're 20, right? Okay. So they have more binary choices to make. They're subject to greater and greater culture. Teachers and peers hand them different labels. The internet and television tell them what to value, what to spend money on, and where the moral lines need to be drawn. But you are the first person to establish the order and the rhythm of their life. This means the church is meant to be a training ground to supplement your discipleship of your family. The church cannot disciple your children for you. But the church can create an environment that fosters your discipleship. So here's the, first, here's the first statement that we got wrong, okay? I'm willing to admit that my generation has failed my children's generation in certain ways. You want to know one of the ways we got it wrong? Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It is a relationship, and it's also a religion, if you decide to move from being a religious Christian, now we can talk, we can debate the definition of religious. See, most of the people who didn't like the definition of religious didn't like the fact that churches became judgmental and exclusionary. And that's a bad thing. I agree. That's a bad form of religion. I agree. But then we tossed the baby out with the bathwater. And here's how we did it. People who leave Christian tradition do not raise Christian kids. They raise spiritual kids, and there is a difference. If you remove yourself from the Christian tradition because you inherited a faith, you didn't come up with it yourself. Like, it's probably less than 1% the number of people who get saved out of the blue without any other person influencing them. It's like lonely people in motels who find Gideon's Bibles. That's it. The rest of us have to inherit our faith from someone else. We have to join a community and join a culture. And we're handed a tradition that teaches us who Jesus is and how to understand him. If you separate yourself from that, you will not raise children who have as much faith in Jesus as you do. You will raise children who are spiritual and open, and they're so open and unstructured that they will raise kids who are not spiritual at all. And what I did not anticipate, because I started as a youth pastor, what I did not anticipate I anticipated helping parents with teenagers who decided to walk away from faith. I was ready for that. I was not ready to pastor teenagers whose parents walked away from faith. And the fact of the matter is, is that what is happening here is we are creating a structure and a tradition to hand on an inheritance to the next generation. And then when we reduce our faith from a religion to a relationship, everything becomes vague and amorphous, and it's just as fine to be super intimate with Jesus as it is to call him every Easter and Christmas and be like, hey, just checking in. Thanks for everything you did for me, but I'm going to continue to live my life on my own. Jesus says that kind of life is not worthy of him. I'm, I'm sad to say that many people in my generation are more concerned about their children's diet than their children's spiritual life. And it bothers me. It bothers me because you actually are called to raise up a generation in the faith. One of the criticisms of the new atheists is that 
we as adults indoctrinate our children. They say, you know, if your faith is real, you shouldn't have to convince your children that Jesus is Lord. You should just let them be raised in an open environment and then they can pick whatever religion they want to pick when they're old enough. Funny, I didn't get the option of whether or not I wanted to learn English. I was born into a family that spoke English. You're not abusing your children for teaching them how to speak English, just so you know. You're not being closed-minded by teaching them how to speak English. English is the language you know. You're conversant in English, and they learn how to speak English because they grow up in your household. Now, the question of whether or not English is the only language to speak is a different question. But you are raising them in the household of faith. And again, this is what I'm talking about. The difference is between your natural family and your spiritual family. Between the kind of world that Jesus is creating that disciples a generation versus the kind of world that convinces yourself you can do it on your own. There are many good Christian dads who have lost their good Christian sons to Sunday morning hockey. Now, I hated the fact, I hated the fact that I was not allowed to play hockey. I just want you to know that. And I hated it because my grandmother told me I was going to be the next Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> By this time, he was already old and probably partially arthritic, but I was determined I was going to be the next Wayne Gretzky. I couldn't stop on skates <laughs> at 11, but I was going to be Wayne Gretzky. I was so determined, I went out and I learned how to stop on my left, and I went, Whoosh, and I slipped. And I, I landed really hard on my wrist, and it hurt more than it had ever hurt in my life. And a homeschool dad grabbed my arm and said, oh, it's okay, it's just out of place. And he went, Quick! and that hurt as much or more than the fall did. And sure enough, he broke my wrist. <laughs> either the ice or the dad did, but either way, I walked away from that homeschool skating event with a cast, okay? And I was determined to be the next Wayne Gretzky. There's one problem. Hockey was always on Sunday mornings. My parents sat me down and said, like, Connor, we love you. We want you to have everything you would ever want. But as a family, we serve the Lord on Sunday mornings. And, and, and I remember Dad like, being pained to tell me that it was a sacrifice for him, that it was a sacrifice for me. But because of that, I learned that there were things in life that were more important than me. And some parents put their children first to the point where their children become an idol. And their children feel like they are gods in the household that must be worshipped. <laughs> My wife is like, I could get, when, you, when you're a preacher, you get feelers from the front row. <laughs> Please pray for my wife. She is having a hard time this morning. <laughs> Have you ever been in an environment with a, with a child or an adolescent who believes they are God, essentially? And you're like, how did we get here? We got here because, and I, I, believe me, it's so innocent because I feel this way about my own kids. I have to submit myself and my family's way to Jesus in order for this not to happen. It's like, it's all about my kids. I just love my kids. I just want what's best for my children. But what are your kids submitting themselves to? If you put them on the highest and best pedestal of your life, they just feel like God on earth. But, in, but if you show them what is a higher way, if you show them what is a higher value, and if you teach them through your sacrifice what they must sacrifice for, they will learn to value what you value. 
They won't worship more expressively than you do. When I come to the church, I stand at the front and I sing as loud as I possibly can. And let's just say 50% of the time, all I'm doing is sweating. I might not even be connecting with the Lord, but I'm trying to raise a generation to understand what is most valuable. I'm not faking it, but it actually isn't about me connecting with the Lord. It's about me creating an avenue for them to understand it is worthy to give God a sacrifice. And Jesus said a teacher is always above his students, which means that I can't expect my children to care more about the Lord than I do. So if I hang back and if I wait for them to get excited about Jesus in youth group, I've already lost them. Your lifestyle creates a ceiling on their expression. They may, when they are freed from your influence, choose to become more passionate about things than you are, God bless them. But in the time that you have to disciple your children, you only have that moment to impart value to them. The abuses of the past do not sanction the negligence of the present or the reactionary course correction of the future. In driver's ed, they used to say, look where you want to go and steer there. Do you want a family that serves the Lord with great passion and abandon? Do you want children who make ethical decisions not because they're afraid of being punished, but because they have deep convictions in their life? then you must be participating in a culture that makes those values displayed for them. And I'm not just talking about the parents in the room. Let me be super clear. You're like, I don't have any kids. I just come to this church. Great. You are like maybe second or third or fourth in line to set up this culture for them. In a certain way, you have almost an even more valuable role because if they only see it through their parents in this environment and if no one else comes alongside them, then that family will feel alone in the assembly. I remember as a kid being dragged into prayer meetings that I hated. And we would be fighting in the van on the way to the prayer meeting. So we would come in and all four of us are almost in tears, right? And we're like, this is super frustrating to be here. And then I would see these old saints kneeling before the Lord, 80 years old, putting their walker aside so that they could kneel before the presence of the Lord in prayer and worship. And they were not there for me. They were there for Jesus. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, there is something valuable here that is worthy of being cared about. There's something valuable here worth giving your life for. If this 86-year-old man can put his walker aside to kneel before the Lord, maybe there's something happening here that I don't understand. I'm sorry, I'm going hard on this, but I just, I just, I just want to bless you this morning. Like memorizing, memorizing Bible verses has nothing to do with memorizing the verse. Memorizing Bible verses has nothing to do with remembering the text when you don't have your phone handy. You can Google it. Memorizing verses is all about creating a culture in the way you think that relies on the present voice of the Lord. I don't remember any of the verses that I memorized when I was a child, but I remember what they did to my brain and what they did to my heart, which was they created an environment for me to receive the word of the Lord faithfully in my present condition. 
You're like, I put, the verse up on the fri- I put the verse up on the fridge and I put it up on the bathroom and I still haven't memorized it. It's okay. Surrounding yourself and culturizing yourself to those values is what actually changes you. You are not indoctrinating your children to one outcome. You are teaching them how to use their incoming freedom. This is why the Bible says, train up your child in the way they should go. The way is the manner of their decision-making. Oftentimes people think, oh, if I raise my kids in the church, they'll be Christians for life, and then they're disappointed when their kids go through a period where they don't believe or struggle or whatever. That's not what the Scripture promises you. The Scripture promises that the way you teach your children to think will be the way they always think for the rest of their lives. They may not go on the path you want them to go on, but they will only be able to think in the way that you discipled them to think. So if you taught them that when you get stressed out, you go on your phone, guess what they're going to do when they're 30? This means we will have to fight against our family's selfish impulses to burrow and protect ourselves and to close ourselves off and to try to create a culture of one. This project, by the way, never works. It only works if you like become a hermit, homeschool your kids, and cut them off from all friendships. And I've seen families that do this, and it's always bad. But most of the times, most of the time, when a family puts quote-unquote family first, most of the time, that project is a failed project, and eventually, children and the parents end up in conflict anyway. You might as well, in whoever you consider your immediate family to be, you might as well start putting what you care about in front of you and teaching one another that you're going to sacrifice for the sake of the Lord. Like you live, in a, you live in a household with a bunch of roommates. You're a single person who lives in a household with a bunch of roommates. And it's like, you know what? I'm an adult. They're adults. It's easier to just sleep in than go to church. But the person who's got the car, who's offering the carpool goes, hey guys, we're actually called to serve the Lord together. Like, yeah, we could sleep in and Jesus would be fine with it. But we're participating in creating a new kind of culture for the sake of another generation. Okay. This doesn't mean you don't put your family first. Sometimes we do a bad job ranking our priorities, right? God first, wife second, kids third. Our relationships are actually interrelational. I love God by loving my kids and loving my wife, but I have to be loving God in order for them to have a value for loving God. So we fight to serve the Lord together. You know what this also means? I won't let my kids go to kids' church without volunteering for kids' church myself. Because I I cannot afford to leave the discipleship up to someone else. That's not to say I don't trust other people, I do. But they have to see that this is what I care about. Okay, why would anyone plant an oak tree? You can either participate in a counterculture or you can be subject to someone else's culture, but you cannot be truly free without community. If you only participate in things that have kickbacks for you, you will have the same kind of community as the tax collectors and Pharisees. You'll love those who love you and you'll hate those who hate you and your life will end up being reduced to whatever culture you find yourself in. Church is supposed to be an opportunity for you to not get what you want. Let me say that again. Church is an opportunity for you to not get what you want. You give and you serve like you're planting an oak tree. Why would anyone plant a tree? Like, think about it. 
Every tree you plant, you will not be able to enjoy. At least for many, many years. How many of you ever looked at the trees and been like, wow, look at that big majestic tree. Think about when you go to buy a house. If you're not buying a new house, what are you looking for? I want an environment that's just got some nice, just some nice trees, just some nice foliage, so nice. Downtown Saskatoon, what are the most, uh, what are the most profitable houses? They're the ones on the avenue with the massive trees that some guy who's dead planted. So I live my life looking for the benefit of what other people sacrifice for. Jesus says, you're always reaping what somebody else sowed. But the way to eternal life is being someone who's willing to plant so that someone else can get a harvest. This is why it's really bad to say the most important thing is to make Jesus your Lord and personal Savior. He's not just your Lord and personal Savior. He's the Lord and Savior of the community you subject yourself to. When we say that, we mean, oh, I, I, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's awesome. But I've got to remind you, to overuse this swimming pool analogy, you don't have to go up to the lifeguard at the pool and say, will you be my Lord and Savior in this pool? The lifeguard doesn't just save the people who ask him to save them. The lifeguard saves everyone who's at the pool because he's the Lord and Savior of the pool. Like, it says in the Bible that Cornelius and his household were saved. You're like, and all the slaves and servants. You're like, did everyone make a personal decision for Jesus? I'm not sure, but eventually they probably did. Why? Because the household is established by Cornelius' spirit and Cornelius' choices. So it's good to have Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, but you will experience his lordship and you'll experience his saving grace depending on the community that you're in. Do you know how many Christians, so-called Christians, are drunk in bars and just at the end of their rope? Do you know how many Christians are struggling in prison? It really, according to James, doesn't matter what you profess to believe. What matters is, is what you experience and how you live. Because sometimes you're not even sure what you believe. So if you don't subject yourself to a saving community... <sighs> I'm feeling like the gear's grinding a little bit, and I'm trying not to make this difficult. This is actually really good news. What it means is, is if you bring your, your kids into an environment where Jesus is Lord and Savior, they'll learn that he's Lord and Savior before they personally subject their lives to him. Like my son already has a relationship with Jesus, and I haven't had a chance to lead him in the sinner's prayer. I hope to do that one day. But he's growing up in an environment where he knows the Lord. He calls me into his room, and he says, Dad, Dad, can you pray for me? Can you pray that Jesus would protect my thoughts from the bad and the scary things? Can, can you pray that Jesus would keep me safe from ghosts? I let him play Mario, and there's these little ghosts that only turn towards you when you're running in a certain way. <laughs> Parent fail. <laughs> but I said to him, and he now repeats it back to me, I say, son, there's no ghost but the Holy Ghost. And he kicks the devil's butt every time. It's my job to teach you not that there's nothing to be afraid of, but that you are more powerful because you are carrying a greater spirit than any spirit that's in the world. So if church is an opportunity to not get what you want, then it means that it's also an opportunity for people, for example, who don't have kids to volunteer in kids' ministry. 
because you're planting an oak tree. It means you, you worship because you, because you get nothing out of it. It means serving in secret and with consistency because you understand that life comes from what you give and not what you get. I'm going to compromise. I, b- I believe she'll still have an eternal reward even though I'm giving up the goat a little bit. But you know who's someone who's doing this? Catherine Scoriapan. If you've ever draw- driven by the church and you've looked at it and you went, wow, those, those flowers are really nice and well tended to, it's because Catherine Scoriapan gives hours every week from spring all the way through to fall to make sure it's weeded, weeded and gardened properly. She didn't do it because she was asked. She didn't do it because anyone forced her to. She didn't do it because I offered her an indulgence that would save her eternal soul because she served the church. She did it because she has a value to create a culture that is submitted to Jesus. And her husband, who is only able to be here rarely, who owns Super Pro Tree Experts, he also makes sure that they're watered and trimmed for us. And they would hate the fact that I'm telling you this. But I'm telling you because I want you to know that this culture is not created by the dude with the microphone on his ear that looks a little bit like Garth Brooks' mid-90s right now. I am not, I'm being serious with you. I am like maybe, I'm like maybe 5% of this culture. Most of the culture that you experience when you come in the doors is created by people that do not get the microphone. It's created by people like Dale, who have to drive from Langham at eight in the morning to be here for two and a half hours to get everything set up and be responsible for everything. It's created by the people who love and serve in the kitchen. We just had a funeral here. People from all over the community came, and you know what's crazy? They came to a funeral like an hour early. And us awakening people were like, what is going on? Everyone's here early? That is crazy. It was like seeing a unicorn or something. But people from our community served and gave because we are creating a culture together. We are in the business of planting oak trees. Finally, Jesus says, those who want to find their life must lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. So how do people end up building a well? Communities, by and large, throughout history, have only survived because there is water for everyone to draw from. And the crazy thing about building a well is, even though it's for you, it's always for more than just you. I found out about this organization called Charity Water that builds walls for places in Africa, and it blows my mind because these places, now Africa is developing, and I don't want any of this to sound like superiority from my white North American rich cultured self, okay? But I find it crazy to me that a society in our modern era can be created where people are struggling and dying because they don't have access to clean water, because the culture they live in, everyone is so hunkered down in self-concern and care that nobody can come together to dig so that everyone can have fresh water. The tribalism and the warfare that has happened in certain places in Africa has made people so survival-oriented that they can't even come together to dig themselves a well. When Jesus says, you must lose your life to find it, but those who try to find their life will lose it, what he is saying is, you have to sacrifice the benefit you get from being an individual for the sake of the eternal life you find in a community. Yeah. 
It feels natural and easy to make something as your natural family your fundamental identity. But even your natural family will fail you. And your natural family is designed so that you lose more than you gain. You give your life for your children. But what that means is, along the way, you're going to be sacrificing. And you're going to need to be replenished. So you're going to need a community. You're going to need to be able to draw water from a well. You might think your hobbies or your time at the lake or your time unwinding in front of the television is bringing you life, but you're also losing more than you're gaining. I'm just going to go on my phone for 20 minutes. Just, I'm just feeling tired. Two hours go by and you're like, I still feel tired, but boy, did I waste a lot of time on my phone. I'm, I'm speaking to myself. I don't have to duck for this one because this is as much about me as it is about you. The secret to life is not found in what you can gain or earn. It's found in self-emptying. You need a community to teach you that self-emptying does not make you feel alive. Self-emptying becomes a wellspring for everyone to experience eternal life. In one version of life, you feel good based on how happy you are, how many moments were satisfying, or what kind of rewards you got out of the experience. In the other way of life, you toil, you don't get acknowledged, and you face suffering instead of running from it, but you feel God's life source flowing through you to your community. And in some small way, that water begins reshaping culture like a river. You want to know what the third thing my generation really messed up on? We thought that Jesus wanted us to be happy more than anything. Jesus doesn't want you to be happy more than anything. Jesus wants you to be Christ-like. We think that the goodness of God gives us permission to make our life about ourselves, and we wonder why the selfishness is killing us. Eternal life doesn't always feel like eternal life. I'm walking with people who have gone through hell and are still going through hell, and it costs me personally an awful lot to work with people through addictions, to work with people through adultery, to work with people through self-destructive behaviors. And you know what? It doesn't always feel fun but it's incredibly rewarding because I'm participating in the building of a well. And I might not be always the thirsty one who needs to drink, but I know that when I participate in a community, eternal life is something we share, not something I get for the benefit of my own happiness. I say this in closing. Joel 2 says this, uh, and it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days will I pour out my spirit. The old can dream because the young people will carry out their dream. And the young people have vision because the old have made it possible for them to lift up their head. This is the kind of community that we're creating. We're creating a community where generations can come together. Where people who are old can dream because they know they are connected to young people who will run with their dream. And where young people can have vision because they know they are covered, protected, and sent by those who have gone on before them. You know what gives me... You know what gives me more confidence than anything to stand up here and preach to you? The fact that since I was 12 years old... Al and Dorothy, after every Sunday, come up to me and say, that was so good, Connor. Thank you for sharing. You really taught me a lot. I'm like, I've got nothing to teach you. 
They have cared for me and loved me and never forgotten a birthday since I was 12 years old. I've had people literally stand up in the middle of a sermon and walk out. I've had contingencies of families in this church conspire against me and leave all at the same time because they thought I was a heretic. You know why I'm not afraid? It's because I got Alan Dorothy in the room. I can have a vision for my life because I'm connected to people who care so deeply about me that it's really hard to knock me on my butt. Because <laughs> I'm not representing myself. I'm carrying a legacy. I'm on the front end of a wave that's pushing me forward. There's not one single good stinking thing in my life that I can't attribute to someone else. People are like, you're a good preacher. Yeah, because my dad gave his 12-year-old like hours of practice. You should have been here two decades ago. You would have had to suffer through a two-hour sermon and you wouldn't even know what I, the heck I said. Literally nothing in my life is my own. And yet at the same time, I get to walk with older people who may not actually get to see their dreams fulfilled, but they know that they have good people that are submitted to their example, who are following their lead, who can carry their dream forward. When Jesus says you've got to be willing to fight with your family, what he's not saying is that he doesn't care about your family. (laughs) He's not saying, oh, if your wife doesn't care, if your kids don't care, forget them. You're with me now. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is your natural family will kill you if it becomes your God. And strangely enough, I'm about to go on a paternity leave for five weeks. (laughs) Thank you. So I might not see you guys as much for a little bit. I'm going to be here, just not the same amount of here. But what I am looking forward to is I'm looking forward for us to become a people who participate together in the planting of trees and the building of wells for the sake of God's kingdom because it is a contrary culture that is discipling the world in a way that the powers and principalities are not. And that's why when kids come up to the front, (laughs) if your kid comes up to the front and wants me to pick them up, I'll pick them up and I'll worship with them. That's why if if my kids are running around and they're running around with other kids, I will stop all of the kids and say, hey guys, playtime is awesome, but this is actually not playtime, this is worship time. So let's worship together. And if your kids worship with my kids, they're going to get the same reward. I'll buy them ice cream too. Because what we're going to do is we're going to disciple, we're going to create a culture of discipleship that's willing to follow Jesus and give self-sacrificially so that we are not subject to the powers and principalities of the world. And even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if we have to fight with our own natural selfish tendencies, it's worth it. Because those who lose their life for Christ's sake will find it.